If you're in the room with me this morning, let me hear you. Listen, I'm so thankful to be with you this morning on the stage. We open up the scriptures together to learn more from God. If you're watching online this morning, thanks for tuning again in as well this morning. I believe God has something for each and every one of us today that he wants to teach us new uh, this morning. So we're in the midst of a series called Debatable. And if you were here last week, you know we've been talking about different questions that have been posed to the church and debated literally for centuries. So 35 minutes should be plenty of time to handle any one of these. These are questions that have been debated for a very, very long time, but I believe that they're important for us to, to ask and to answer and to wrestle with. Because I believe some of these questions may be the very things that are the keys to some of us in the room actually being able to live out a true and honest faith by wrestling with some of these questions. Last week, if you were here, Chad Myers did a great job asking the question of whether or not God is real. Now, some of y'all in the room, like, listen, you could have walked up on stage and just been like, yes, and then we could all just leave. But there's a lot of, of debate, there's a lot of things to look at and wrestle with, and Chad did a great job talking about the echoes of God that we see within the world around us, and if we're not attuned to it, if we're not careful, we can miss it altogether. He also did a great job of saying, listen, maybe the God that we've rejected is a caricature of God, not the actual character of God, and we've written it all off as if it means nothing. However, I believe this morning there is certainly a debate whether God exists or not. Uh, reasons to be certain, reasons to be uncertain, but there are echoes that if we can listen to them, it might be the very thing that caused us to believe that God's existence is real. I wanna be clear this morning. My intention is not to win some kind of debate. Like our intention is not to be able to say something from stage that's gonna be a major win for us here at the church. That is not the intention of this series. The intention of this series is rather than winning, it's meant to be winsome to create a conversation, to set the table, to pull up a chair, to be able to see something from a different perspective, potentially, where we could maybe have our faith grow in some kind of way. And so today, this week, I wanna wrestle with another debate that's existed within the church for a very long time. I wanna look at whether or not the Bible is relevant, because they give me the easy ones. Is the Bible relevant? Does it have something to say to my certain culture? Is it valuable to me in my own context? Does it say something that I can actually live out right here and right now? Is it trustworthy? Should I listen to it? Is the Bible relevant? Before we really jump in, I wanna talk about what I mean by relevant. So my, my family recently, my mom and dad, we found this uh, brown box at their house that was full of DVDs. And these DVDs were made from old VHS tapes that we had from my grandparents and from others and put together all on these DVDs in this box. They've been transferred there. And so as you may know in your household too, they're not labeled very well. And so you start looking through them like, what is all this stuff? And like one of them says like, Aunt Bonnie and the cat. And you're like, what? So we put them in and started watching them. And each and every DVD that we watched and played, there was all this really cool history. It was like my grandparents when they first got married. And it was like this house they built on the farm and they're boating in ponds and they're flying airplanes. My grandparents were both pilots. They were riding horses, boating on the lake, all this stuff. And even this video of my dad when he was first born. But in watching each and one of the DVDs as well, we realized something that they were horribly filmed, uh, terribly colored and really, really hard to hear. And as you watch each person in the video, all their clothing styles were antiquated. All their hairdos are from a bygone era. All the vehicles that are existing within the videos are since rusted out and dead. And even some of the folks within the videos have since passed away. So as we watched these DVDs and all these videos of my family, in some ways it felt so irrelevant to my current context. Like, I don't know anybody that has a hairdo like that anymore. I've never even seen a car like that. You know, like, it just seemed like a whole other world even. And in some ways felt really irrelevant. 
But at the same time, as I watched these videos, I began to realize too, there was, there was an, a, a relevance to my life that I had never seen before. Because it's not my life. I wasn't even born yet, but it's, but it's still my history. It's like where I come from. It's still connected to me in some kind of way. And watching these videos, this is what relevance actually looks like. It doesn't mean necessarily that every single piece and part can boom, be plugged into my context. But it says something to me because it's a part of my history. I believe this morning that as foreign as the Bible may seem to some of us in the room today, however out of touch we may perceive it to be, how inconsistent or contradictory we may believe it to be, how bigoted certain passages may feel, this book is a part of our story. It's where we come from. It says something to us right here and right now. So what is this thing? What is this book that maybe you carried in with you this morning, you got on your phone because you're in 2021? Like, what is this book? Why is it so controversial and why is it so incredible? First, I think it's important to have us all start on the same playing field. The Bible is a collection or a library, if you will, of ancient books, poems, and letters, all compiled into one place. The Bible, the one you hold in your hand, was written by at least 40 authors over 1,600 years, and it consists of 66 different books in total, all put together in two different testaments, one called the Old Testament and one called the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament is made up of 39 different books that are all a part of what is called the Old Testament, dedicated to the beautiful and at times messy relationship between God or Yahweh and these Hebrew people. These 39 books are made up of 12 history books, books like Joshua, Judges, Ruth. There's five books in the Old Testament that are law books like Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, speaking about God's law for his people. Five books of poetry and wisdom that was imparted to people like Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. And 17 books of prophecy like Ezekiel, Daniel, and Obadiah, speaking about the future and what is to come, all making up the 39 books in the Old. The New Testament, made up of 27 books, are dedicated to life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was known as the Messiah, and the birth of this early church movement. So there's four books that were biography books dedicated to the life and times of Christ. Then you have 23 letters that were written by different individuals and passed around from church to church, helping the church understand what it looks like to live this resurrection life. So that's what this thing is. Maybe the only time you've ever really seen a Bible is on your grandparents' table, like growing up, and you never really knew it. It was dusty. Nobody ever really opened it. You couldn't touch it. It was like precious. It was holy. But this book is made up of 66 books written by many different people over a very long time period, all with the same message in mind that there's a God who's created everything and who is dedicated to putting back all the pieces of what has been broken, who will pursue us at all costs because he loves us. So before we debate this book, I think it's important to understand its origins, like where it comes from. And so if that's true, how can the church claim that a book that is thousands of years old and written in a far removed culture actually have relevance to our life today? How can we claim that this thing that is inspired by God is something that should have an authority within our life? How can we claim that? And I believe it first starts with recognizing that potentially we have mishandled these books, these poems, these letters that have been given to us. And because we've mishandled them, we've asked questions of it that it was never meant to answer in certain kinds of ways, in certain books and letters and pieces and parts. And because of that, it's become incredibly irrelevant to us. I'll give you an example. 
In my family, we have a book that we've had since my son was first born, Eli. So he's nine years old now. We've had it for a while. It's a tantalizing piece of literature, and it's called Dinosaur Versus the Potty. And in this great book, um, it's very short. Uh, you probably could get through the whole thing in a day. Uh, in this book, it's categorizing a single day in the life of this little dinosaur and his uh, endeavoring to try to make it to the potty, even though he's playing all these water-related things all throughout the day. It's very powerful. Uh, we used it, though, with my kids. We would read this book, and it was a way of teaching them, hey, listen, this next step of potty training is very important. Mommy and daddy are begging you, and we'll read you this book as long as it takes to get there. Now, if someone were to take dinosaur versus the potty into some kind of science classroom and try to have some kind of discussion with a biology class about, like, the function of, of the human body when it comes to digestive system, you know, they'd be super frustrated because it would answer no question that they're wanting to know. Like, they would say nothing about the bladder, the way the brain works in conjunction with the body to know when it's time to go. They would have no clue what to do with it. But the same thing is true on the flip side. When it was time to teach my children how to go potty, we didn't take a scientific book and sit them all down and say, listen, everyone, you have a bladder, and your bladder holds this amount of liquid. Anything above that could cause for a bad day. We, we didn't do that. Instead, we used the proper book for the proper context. We, we chose the right book to use in the right kind of way. And so when we know the Bible is made up of these different kinds of books, whether it's history books or poetry books, whatever it might be, we have to handle them in the way they were intended to be handled in the beginning. Otherwise, not only are they irrelevant, but potentially they become really, really frustrating. So what are some of the ways that we mishandle the Bible? What are some of the ways that we deal with this in a way that it was not intended to be dealt with? I would say first, we treat it oftentimes like an owner's manual. And we've probably heard this said before. It was said to me when I was young. This is an owner's manual for life. All you have to do is look in it. I'll tell you exactly how to live. But the truth is, if you buy a refrigerator or a stove, it comes with an owner's manual. My wife keeps all of them in one location. I'm a massive stack. It's a little bit over the top. But these owner manuals are meant to help you. If something breaks on the refrigerator, all you have to do is turn to page 12, and it'll tell you exactly how to fix that particular thing that is broken. The Bible doesn't function like that. Like there's not a certain page you can just go to and boom, just like that, it's fixed within a certain time period and everything is fine before the day is done. It's not written like that. It's not saying to us, here's how to assemble and troubleshoot the perfect life. It's not meant to function in that kind of way. It's not an owner's manual. Two, we oftentimes treat it like a magic eight ball. Ever had a magic eight ball when you were a kid? You had questions you want to know, like this girl in school, is she ever going to like me? And you ask the ball and you shake it up and turn it over. It's always like, no. Oh, no big deal. You just ask again until you get the right answer, right? We treat the Bible this way sometimes. Like for some of us, we've not opened the Bible in years. It's dusty. We blow it off. We pick it up. We're like, God, I really need you right now. I know we've not talked in a while, but if you could just say something to me right now, that's all I need. And we shake up the Bible. We open it up. We slam our finger down. And we read whatever text we come to. And how many know that doesn't always work? Let me shake it up. You put your, your finger down. The text says in Proverbs 27, 14, if a man loudly blesses his neighbors early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Wow, that's inspiring, right? And if we don't get the verse we want or the answer that we want, all we do is we shake it up and we open it again and try again until we finally get the answer that we're looking for. The Bible is not a magic eight ball. It's mishandling and it's frustrating and it causes it to be irrelevant. Third, we oftentimes treat the Bible like a textbook, like a textbook. 
We read some of the books in the Bible as if we're wanting to find out how to get an A on the test or become smarter than somebody else. And so one of the examples where we do this oftentimes is in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter one, from a context of when it was written, is a Hebrew poem. Chapter one, the creation story, it speaks of God creating everything in seven days. Now, some folks have seen this particular passage and said, listen, seven literal days, 24-hour days. I wanna be very clear with you right now. If you walk out of here and say, Trevor says God can't create the world in seven days, not true. Absolutely possible. God can do anything. But if we wanna look at it in context, Genesis is not a textbook. I highly doubt the author of Genesis was trying to prove to us from a scientific standpoint how God created the world. Here's what he tried to tell us. God created the world. And he chooses to do it through a beautiful poem, talking about how God created everything. He first created and then he filled. On the seventh day, he rested. It is incredibly profound, has so much to say to us today, but there are certain people who I know in my life who have given up their entire faith because they can't figure out how this could possibly be true. It's not a magic eight ball. It's not an owner's manual. It's not a textbook. It is something different altogether. So here's the question. How do we handle this incredibly controversial book? How do we handle this amazing, amazing book in a way where it becomes incredibly relevant to our lives? I would offer four different ways this morning. I don't wanna be right. I wanna have conversation. I don't wanna win. I wanna be winsome. So pull up to the table. Maybe this can help us see the Bible as something that can speak to us today. Number one, we have to interpret the Bible in view of the whole. To really see the Bible as relevant, we have to interpret the pieces and parts of the Bible in view of the whole. So each book, each chapter, each verse is a certain piece and part of the incredible story overall of God who is pursuing his people and who is restoring creation. To truly experience the amazing impact of the scripture's relevance to us today, we have to allow ourselves to be able to see it in light of the given context of the entire book. I would say it this way, we have to allow scripture to interpret scripture. When we find a passage of scripture that's difficult for us, potentially we need to look out further to help find out what this actually means. To single out a portion of the Bible and make conclusive statements about doctrine, about who God is, what he is like, is not just unhelpful, but at times it can be dangerous. You see, there have been times within our church's history, not Mount Hor, but the big C church's history, when the Holy Scriptures have become a painful weapon. There, there have been heinous things placed on people because of a narrow view of the Bible. When you don't allow the rest of the Bible to interpret the pieces and the parts of the Bible, this is how you might have something like Hitler who used Scripture to demand loyalty to his horrible reign. How you would have slavery that was defended and perpetrated for so long using the Bible. This is how women have been limited in ministry and devalued within the church at certain times for a very long time. This one way of seeing the Bible afresh and new, interpreting the pieces in light of the whole, it shows us there's a trajectory to scripture. There's something that God is doing from Genesis to Revelation, and it informs our understanding of God's intention for the world that he's created from the word that he's preserved for us. I'll give you an example. When you read the Old Testament, you don't have to look very hard to discover that in the Old Testament, there's a system of slavery that makes it very clear that there are people who were owned and who were mistreated in the ancient Near East. It was happening. 
And so in our culture today, there are many who find this really hard to reconcile with our present time. Also in the Old Testament, there's discussion often about the value or lack of value or worth of women. Makes it very clear they're considered, at best, less than property. This too seems so backward to the way in which it turns us off from the scriptures as being relevant for us today. But there's something very important to keep in view here. The Bible is not written in a vacuum. Do you understand? The Bible was not written in a vacuum. The Bible is written in a certain context and at a certain time. And so specifically, speaking of slaves and women, this was more descriptive than it was prescriptive. This was actually happening, actually all over the world. And so when the writers write about these things, it's not prescriptive for us, it's descriptive of what's going on. This is clear once you take the passages in view of the whole. Their trajectory for both groups of these two people, women and slaves, changes massively from Genesis to Revelation. For instance, in the Old Testament, it's not hard to find some of these passages that are troublesome. But when you go to the New Testament, there's a book called Philemon. Maybe you've never even read it before or seen it before. Very small book in the New Testament, but an amazing book. And Paul writes in Philemon, he's speaking to a man named Philemon who is a slave owner. And apparently Paul has run across his runaway slave named Onesimus. And Paul writes to Philemon after he's met Onesimus and he says something very, very powerful that sometimes we miss. Here's what Paul says as he writes to him in Philemon chapter one, verses 15 and 16. He says, perhaps the reason that he was separated for you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, but in a totally different way. You see what Paul's doing here. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even more dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. You see what's happening here. In order to take this Old Testament scripture passage, whatever it might be, and really make sense of it, we have to look at the totality of scripture. Look at what Paul says in Philemon. Look at the words he uses. A fellow man, a brother in the Lord, not as a slave, this is a massive step forward in the understanding of the sanctity of every human life, no matter who they are. This is clear from the story of creation as God creates all human beings, all the way to Revelation, where we find out at the very end that every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship Jesus together in one location and in unity. Man, to understand the pieces, you have to see it as a part of the whole. Another example comes from Luke 24, verse 1. We just read this at Easter. Verse one says this in Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that had been prepared and went to the tomb. Who went? The women. Two women in particular. What's interesting to me is if you are someone in the ancient Near East trying to get people to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, the two witnesses that you would use to, to proclaim that would not be women. Because in that culture, women could not even testify in the court of law. And so what's happening here is a massive step forward, a massive shift. You have to interpret the pieces in light of the whole. Not only that, but in the early church, after Jesus resurrects from the dead, you have two women who, made, who play major roles. You have Apostle, her name is Junia. You have Phoebe, and she's a deacon. And both of them are a part of what God is doing from the very beginning after Christ's resurrection. Interpret the pieces in light of the whole. If we don't, we run the risk of not only seeing the Bible as something that is irrelevant, but at worst, using it as a weapon that is fueled by bad theology. Secondly, 
If we can see the pieces and parts in light of the whole to help us understand all of it. Secondly, I believe there's an agreement between God's world and his word. There's an agreement between God's world and his word. The, the question for me is this, whether or not God, God has an intention for all that he has made or not. Does he have a way in which he wants us to live, that he's designed us to live in the world? I would argue that the Bible reveals for us how to live this plan of God for all of creation. In fact, I believe in Colossians chapter one, verse 16 and 17, we see it in many places, but maybe most clearly right here, the connections between all these things. The writer says this, for in him, speaking about Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. It cannot be overstated, particularly in the book of Colossians, Jesus is a big deal. Like he, he is the centerpiece of all of the universe, of all of creation. Everything was made for him and by him and he holds everything together. If this is true, then I would argue whether it's general revelation that we talked about last week in creation or specific revelation that we're talking about in God's word and Jesus himself, we can find then God has an intention for how we should live. I'll give you an example. In the New Testament, Jesus says many, many different things, many commands to his disciples, ways that we are meant to live. And if you look at the way Jesus invites us to live, it truly is the best way to live. When you look at what Jesus invites us into, I believe he invites us into work in conjunction, in tandem with the way the world was meant to function and work. So Jesus says things like this, choosing forgiveness is always better than choosing bitterness. Choosing generosity is always better than choosing stinginess. Choosing humility is better than pride. Loving God and people is always better than living with hate. Jesus gives us these things in the New Testament and they seem to be in conjunction and working in tandem with how the world works best. In our culture, we've become busier and busier. Can I get an amen? I mean, just more and more stuff, less and less margin. But if you read the scriptures, you come to find out from the very beginning in creation, as we go back to Genesis chapter one, Genesis one says, God created all things in seven days. Six days he created on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. There's a cadence, there's a rhythm to creation that God is inviting us to live into. Not only that, but look at creation. In most places in the world, there's like four seasons, unless you live in South Carolina. There's like summer and there's winter. There's three, there's pollen season two. But if you have four seasons, there's a rhythm to life. Each and every year you go through these different rhythms, these cadences that we're invited to live into because God's world and his word work in conjunction with one another. They're tied together. God has created man and woman to relate to one another through sacrificial love. The Bible gives us what this looks like through this Trinity experience, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In perfect relationship with one another, ever giving, ever receiving is an example of what marriage is meant to be. Man and woman, they are complements to one another. They produce life. Seems to be in conjunction with the way the world works and functions. Jesus tells us that in this world, you will experience trouble. There will be hardship. If you watch the news lately, it's, it's a reality that the world is difficult, the world is hard. There will be trials of all kinds. 
pain and suffering. There'll be violence and victims of violence. There'll be sickness and death, hunger, lack of food. But the Bible does not turn a blind eye to this. In fact, I would argue from beginning to end, the fact is that God speaks to his concern, compassion, and care for the brokenness of the world that is so evident around us. Because there's an agreement between God's world and his word. And he wants us to live that out. It becomes incredibly relevant to us when we see it in that light. Third, what is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. What is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. You see, there are writings by certain people with a certain amount of information that has been given to them in their context. Let me, let me try to be clear. If you are a writer in the Old Testament, you only know so much about science. Can we agree? Like, we, we, we know much more today than they knew then. We know much more about the world than they knew then, more about technology now than they knew then. Ultimately, they only knew so much about God, and they were learning about him along the way and writing about their experiences with him. And so what's, what's concealed in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, seems to become incredibly clear along the way, and we'll, we'll talk about why in a second, but I wanna give you an example of this. In the Old Testament, you may have heard of a man named David. David was king of Israel. And you may know a story where David sees a woman named Bathsheba, he's taken by her, and so he has an affair with her, and then he has her, her husband killed. And the Bible says they have a child together. Now, within the story of David and Bathsheba, this child dies. And if you look at some of the writings of, Paul, of, of David in Psalms, and also some things that are written in 2 Samuel, the blame on why this child dies seems to be because of, of David's sin. Because of his sin, this is a punishment for what he's done. Now, this was a very common thought at that time. I mean, sin, punishment, death, all seem to be wrapped together with one another. But if you go to the New Testament, you have this experience where Jesus shows up and he's talking to these religious folks and there's a blind guy there. And these religious folks say to Jesus, hey, who sinned that this guy be born blind? Was it him or his parents? Again, it was a common thought. This guy's born blind, something must have happened, someone's to blame for this, so who is it? But what does Jesus say? Neither one has sinned. This has happened so that God might receive glory. And then he heals the man. Two very different interpretations of sickness, punishment, and death. What is concealed in the old is actually made clearer in the new. God is learning, uh, allowing himself to be learned by his people more and more intimately involved within their life. And it becomes incredibly obvious in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Colossians, when we are given an incredible lens to view all of the Bible through. And his name is Jesus. Here's what Colossians says in chapter one, verse 19 through 20. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, talking about Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God saw right to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. This means that Jesus is the full revelation of God. I think sometimes before we get so up in arms about some of the things that the Old Testament folks did not know, let's just realize they didn't know Jesus at that time. They had limited information. We have the opportunity to have the Bible in front of us, to have seen Jesus walk among people, to have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside of us. We have a great advantage to what we know. What is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. If Jesus is the fullness of God, if he's the full revelation of God, if you wanna know what God looks like, look no further than the incarnation. 
Jesus shows us who God is. And he allows us through that lens of Christ to see the entire book of the Bible. He is the perfect depiction, the imperfect interpretation, the example, and the guide for what God intends for all of us. John chapter one says it this way, Jesus, Jesus was the word made flesh. He lived out the scriptures perfectly so that we might see what it looks like. Look no further than the incarnation. Lastly, but maybe most importantly, to really see the Bible as relevant to us, I, have to, I believe we have to understand that more than we read the Bible, the Bible reads us. More than we read the Bible, the Bible reads us. As we open the scriptures, as we read through the Bible, there are certain things that if we allow it to, if we do the hard work of studying this message that God has given us to discover things about ourselves, we learn things about us that otherwise we would be unaware of. It's a bit of a mirror that shows us back who we are. Please hear me this morning. It is possible to know the word of God and not know the God of the word. We can study the scripture and memorize it and quote it and be so familiar with it in terms of the words on the page. But if we don't do the hard work of allowing God to show us something through what we're learning, then we never get to know him. We can know the word of God and not know the God of the word. We don't study the scriptures for information. We study the scriptures for transformation. This is where God meets us and he changes us and he causes us to become more the people that he intends for us to be. Here's how Hebrews chapter four says it. The writer says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It splits us right down the middle. And if we have eyes to see, it shows us what God is trying to do within our life. I've shared before in this room that there was a particular passage of scripture that I came across when I was in college that absolutely changed the trajectory of my life. I would not be the person I am today without reading this passage of scripture in that context, at that circumstance, right when I needed it. It was Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And as soon as I read it, as soon as I heard it, I felt like God was just poking me in the heart saying, listen, you are living with no vision in your life. You're floating day to day. You have no real direction. And I can give you that direction if you let me. It changed everything for me. I mean, it read something inside of me that I could not see myself and it changed everything. This is why sometimes people will say things, listen, I read this scripture 10 years ago and 10 years later, I'm reading it again and I'm seeing something new here. It's doing something different to me. You know why? The Bible is not a dead document. It's alive, it's active, and it has a way of reading us more than we read it if we allow it to. I believe that God, if we concluded last week that he is indeed real, I believe this God wants a relationship with us. He's always speaking to us in all kinds of ways. The question is, are we listening? Are we listening for him? Are we not seeing the Bible as relevant simply because we don't wanna hear the voice of God actually speak to us? Do you hear the voice of God? Could you pick it out? If something was said, could you know that sounds like God? My grandmother, when I was in college, used to send cards all the time to me. Like, um, it seemed like every other week I would get a card from my grandmother, handwritten in cursive from Minnesota, flown all the way down to South Carolina. 
And she'd always have a $2 bill or a $5 bill inside of the card. And she was like, don't spend it all in one place. I'm like, okay. So I get this card and I'd open it up and I'd read through it. And my grandma's from Minnesota and she speaks in a very certain kind of way. She says things like, oh, that's a hoot. You know, those kinds of things. Everything's an abbreviation. So she's talking, she'll be talking about the living room. It's like the LR, the dishwashers, the DW, all these kinds of things. It's all shorthand and it's cursive. And there are times I have to get a translator to know exactly what it says because I can't quite read it. But I love these letters. And when I get them and I open them up and I can read through it, I can hear her in my head. I know what she sounds like. When she writes, what a hoot, I know what that sounds like for her to say that. I've been around her enough. I've listened to her enough. I've heard from her enough. You could have 20 cards on a table and I could go through them and I could pick out this is the one from, from Mary Fiscus. I know it. It sounds like her. Do you know the voice of God? Do you, do you read the scriptures, not for information, but for transformation? Have you ever really opened them up and said, God, would you teach me something new today? I want to know you. I wanna know what your voice sounds like. I wanna know the way that you feel about me, the way you feel about the world, the intention that you have from creation all the way through. Would you show me that today? And so this morning, I believe that God is always speaking to us. And right now in these seats, in this room, I think God could be saying something new and fresh to you from his word about the kind of care, concern, love, grace and mercy that he offers each and every one of us. So this morning, I wanna invite you just for a moment, just stay in your seat. And I would encourage you to allow your hearts and your minds to be open. I want you to hear the voice of God this morning. I want you to hear what it sounds like, the way it feels. Maybe for the first time, maybe in a very long time, feel like you've heard God speak to you today. So I want you to listen to every word of this song. Just be present. Hear the voice of God. I can hear it in the crackle of a bonfire And I can hear it in the middle of the ocean water Oh, I just can't explain it But it makes me want to cry and I can hear it when the rain falls on my windowsill On a playground where children's laughter lives I can hear it in the busy New York City streets And I can hear it in the country Georgia fields of green Oh, I can't explain it, no But it makes me want to cry Sounds like Grandmama Telling you where you come from Said it's kind of like laughter Out of the mouths of your loved ones Catching up with an old friend And reminiscing on back when It's like a summertime sprinkler Street side with my ice cream cone Said it sounds like a choir Singing hymns hallelujah It's the voice of God Yeah, it can make a grown man cry I can hear it on the wind of an early morning 
the fog is getting thick and the birds are chirping. Oh, it's just something I can't explain. No, but it makes me wanna cry. And I can hear it in the hush of a midnight hour. I'm alone in my room if I'm going under. Oh, I just can't explain it. No, but it brings me back to life. It's like the sound of a newborn baby crying. Yeah. It's like the final breath of a loved one passing. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, cause it leads me to the light. Like a drive-through movie, small town with a big screen, like grilling out in the front yard. Sometimes it's the simple things, like a storytelling with my grandpa. He was so easy to believe, like when the sun goes up, yeah. Sometimes it's better when the sun comes down, 'cause there's just something about the moonlight. And it can make you feel alright. Oh, it's the voice of God. And it can make a grown man cry. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. It's the voice of God. And it can make a grown. of God I don't know I just feel like I want, I want to say this morning like he is accessible to us he's been speaking to us he, he has things to say to us he loves us he's an intention for us there's a passage of scripture I want to read this morning the reason I want to read it is because to me it sounds like the voice of God the things that he would say the ways he would relate to us This is Ephesians chapter three. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This week, may you become keenly aware of God's voice speaking to you. May you become so aware of what he sounds like that you could pick it out in a crowd. That you would choose his voice over every other voice that we hear day in and day out. <laughs> 